You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Inspired to Act, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine. Here is your host, founding chair, Department of Neurology, Brigham and Women's Hospital, and professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Martin A. Samuels. Even though he retired from clinical and surgical service in 1991, the doctor known as the father of modern transplantation, Dr. Thomas Starzl, has been as active as ever, devoting his time to research, teaching, and as professor of surgery at the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center's program named in his honor, the Thomas E. Starzl Transplantation Institute. Joining us today to discuss his career, first as a pioneer in transplantation, and now is one of the most prolific scientists in the world, is physician, researcher, and expert on organ transplantation, Dr. Thomas E. Starzl. Dr. Starzl, welcome to Inspired Act. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I wanted to start with a little tidbit that I bet most of our listeners don't know. Of course, they know you very well from the transplantation world, but I bet that most of them don't know that you started as a neurophysiologist and you worked with the great Magoon on the ascending reticular activating system, one of the most important discoveries of the last century. Could you tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that neurophysiology work, Dr. Starzl? Well, this happened after my second year in medical school, during which I had a class under Dr. Magoon's supervision, and he was a, a wonderful teacher. And for some reason, whatever it was that I was doing made an impression on him. And he gave me a student scholarship for the summer of 1949. And the project was on the reticular activating system of the basal diencephalon. So toward the end of the summer, I made a modification in whatever it was we were doing and discovered some signals that were generated by uh, sensory input, such as making a sound with a cricket, mechanical cricket, and then also a visual stimulation. And it was a clue to so-called extra lemniscal uh, sensory input into the reticular formation. So proceeding from that discovery and a realization that it was important, I dropped out of medical school for about a year and a half to work full-time, did the basic mapping of this system. Toward the end of that time, Magoon left and went to UCLA as the founding chairman of the Department of Neuroanatomy. And I finished the work and uh, wrote the papers, went back to medical school for a year, and then quit again for another half year, and went to Los Angeles and finished up the work, this time in monkeys rather than in cats. So I spent rather a long time, about overall about two and a half years, and ultimately finished up getting an MD and a PhD in neurophysiology at the same time in 1952. It's a remarkable story. I mean, first of all, um, Magoon, for our listeners, this discovery of the ascending reticular activating system, extremely important discovery in neurophysiology and in clinical neurology. And when you say you did pretty well, I happened to see a letter that Magoon wrote you, a recommendation that he wrote to Dr. Blaylock in uh, surgery at Hopkins, saying you were the most spectacular student he ever saw. And what I was trying to understand is why didn't you become a neurologist, Dr. Starza? We could have used you in neurology. Well, I, everybody else thought that I was going in, probably going into neurosurgery. And I'm not sure why I didn't end up in neurosurgery, except that for some reason I had lost interest. And bear in mind, I was pretty young at the time. I was 23 or 24 years old at the time. So I dropped it. And, and there was a specific reason, too. And that was that in the autumn 
1951, after I had gone to Los Angeles, Dr. Magoon had arranged for me to go to Sweden to work with a man named Ragnar Granit, G-R-A-N-I-T. Granit and Hess and a third person, I can't remember who it was, won the Nobel Prize in 1967. Many people, including Harriet Zuckerman, who wrote a very good book about the back-channel stories of the Nobel Prize, thought that Magoon should have been one of the participants. He certainly was there at the ground level. But that was neither here nor there. I had the option of going over and joining Granite, but the dean of the Northwestern Medical School told me that I would really had to make a decision whether I was going to finish school or not, and I had already dropped out twice. So I had what sounded to me like an ultimatum to either come back or else bow out. So there were a lot of factors. I also was receiving pretty heavy pressure from my family to settle down and do something or finish <laughs> something. So uh, anyway, I, I, I dropped out. That's an interesting point in its own right, because I think a lot of our current medical students think that they've just got to put one foot in front of the other and get finished as fast as they can. But there you are, you dropped out at two different points, took forays into a field that turned out to be quite different than your ultimate field, and it uh, enriched your career, didn't it? Well, I think it did. And also it conveyed a point of view that I always had from that point onward, which is a little bit difficult to define, except that it concerns the development of whole systems system function rather than becoming so reductionist that you lose track of the forest for the leaves. I think it was very helpful. I always considered almost everything that I did from that point onward to be in some way a simulation of brain function. That is the compilation of gears and mechanisms and how they all interact just the way the brain is. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD Radio, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Martin Samuels, and joining me today is noted researcher, surgeon, and transplant pioneer, Dr. Thomas E. Starzl. Well, Dr. Starzl, let's talk about the, the big one, which is liver transplantation work. In your book, The Puzzle People, you make a big point about the need for collaboration and teamwork. And it's remarkable to read this because one of my earlier guests on this uh, program was Joe Murray, who I'm sure you know very well at the Brigham, who was involved in the first uh, renal transplantation. He made exactly the same point. Could you expand on that a bit, your view about the need for collaboration and teamwork in this kind of transplantation endeavor? Well, at a very personal level, I never felt comfortable working in total isolation. I always had somebody who was a great partner over a period of nearly 50 years. So that was just the beginning. I think the important point is that if you get into a new area or if you allow a clinical objective or a clinical observation to drive whatever research you're interested in, Inevitably, you have to wander off in fields that you really are not an expert in. And so you have to seek collaborations if you're going to get anywhere. You can't do it all yourself. And you can just make that an exponential situation when you get to something as complex as organ transplantation, where you have to have people contributing at all levels and the contributions, if they're slipped up on can lead to disaster in the same way as somebody who uh, drives a plane around isn't or can't be a law unto himself. That calls for teams and teamwork. 
What did it feel like when you were there at the time of this first effort to make a liver transplantation in a human being? A technical uh, tour de force uh, must have been considered very, very dangerous. What gave you the courage to go forward with this? We knew very well that it was possible because before making the first attempt at liver transplantation, I had done at least 500 experimental procedures, the same procedure variations, looking where all the pitfalls were. And so we had an extremely good idea of exactly what to do. And also had developed a method of immunosuppression, which at that time was an important breakthrough that depended on the timing of drugs, each of which was insufficient to prevent or control rejection, but when used in just the right way together, allowed you to break through that rejection, that immune barrier. So to say that we weren't tense uh, would, would be a lie, but we were confident that it could be done. And we did have animals who were surviving prolonged periods of time some of them, as it turned out, lived for a full canine lifetime, even after discontinuing drugs. So we knew that it was possible to succeed, but also possible to succeed in a potentially spectacular way by getting through the first part of the process and ultimately being able to get off of drugs. This has really dramatically altered hepatology, the whole way hepatology is practiced. Did you know that prospectively? Did you know that if you could succeed that this would probably change the way medicine was practiced? Well, I think we did know that, or at least knew that the potential was there. But I think it would be an exaggeration to say that I could envision the heights to which transplantation actually rose. It superseded anything that I was genuinely hoping for. What are you interested these days? You've got a powerful background in neurophysiology. You still talk, sound like a neurologist. You really are interested in the nervous system. You've done this incredible work in transplantation. What interests you now? Is it some integration of those two areas? Well, actually, there is that possibility, but it's too woolly to try to get into (laughs) in this conversation. I do think that there are very important connections between neuroscience and immunology. Certainly, they share some fundamental attributes of cognition and memory. So those are very powerful cross-connections, but I don't think that I should get beyond that. This is a fairly challenging time in medicine, as everybody knows, and a lot of people listening to us today are people out there doing day-to-day practice, and how would you advise people, particularly younger people, who want to make a real contribution in medicine? Is it science that's going to drive us forward? Is it just outstanding clinical work? How would you integrate clinical work in science? It's getting very hard to do that, in part because the technology has become so complicated. I think that almost all of the great contributions in transplantation came from rather simple models, experimental animals, including mice that were studied by people who had scissors, a knife, and some sewing thread and could put on skin grafts. These are people like Billingham Brent in Medawar, whose classical paper in 1953 really opened up the modern field of transplantation at a basic science level. The observations that were made clinically also required powers of observation and pattern recognition and very accurate reporting, 
with neither minimization nor exaggeration of results. And I think all those qualities still pertain, but there has been a very strong shift toward full-time commitment either to basic science or to clinical work as the years have gone by, as the technology has become more complex. I think since you mentioned Joe Murray and in the same breath, you almost have to mention Franny Moore at the Brigham, it's hard to conceive how what was done in the early days of transplantation could be done today. I'd like to thank my guest, the pioneering surgeon and researcher from the University of Pittsburgh School of Medicine and the UPMC Transplantation Institute named in his honor, Dr. Thomas E. Starzl. Dr. Starzl, thanks so much for spending time with us this week on Inspired to Act. It was a pleasure. You have been listening to Inspired to Act on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring international leaders in the field of medicine, hosted by Dr. Martin A. Samuels. 